Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Counterculture, which walks through the Beatitudes found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. So one of our worship residents, Alice, um, who's a member of the church here, she's going to come and she's going to read Matthew 5, 1 through 12 for us, and then afterwards we'll pray together. Alice. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you, Alice. And let's pray this aloud together, this prayer of illumination. We're asking God to illuminate the scripture for us now and in our lives each day. Let's read, read together. Grant, almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness, and thus lull our minds asleep. But may we be roused daily by your words, and may we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name, and thus present ourselves and all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may peaceably rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your celestial habitation, where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. So we're in this series that we're calling Counterculture. You may remember from last week and previous weeks, the way that we frame this series is that uh, we want you to imagine that there are three rivers that are running, metaphorically speaking. The first river is the current of the river of the way of the world, the way the world does things. The second river is the current of the way of the church, the, the, the culture of the church, and how uh, there are many things that we as the church, not just perimeter church, but church at large, are doing things and, and believing and moving and working in, in ways that are absolutely in line with what God would design and has designed for us. But there are other things that we've settled into where the sediment of the river, if you will, from the world has gotten into the church. And we are beginning and have been, maybe for quite some time, functioning in ways that if we, uh, if we look closely and if we look earnestly and honestly, we begin to see, hey, this is not how God designed us to live either individually or corporately. 
But there's a third river, and it's the river that, as we look at these Beatitudes, begin to bring the culture of this river really into view. And it's the river, the current of the river of the kingdom of God. And that's the one we want to swim with. We want to swim with that current. Being able to, with grace and with patience, but with honesty, being able to look not just at the world, but even at the rhythm of the church sometimes and say, that's not healthy and it's not in line with the kingdom of God. So Jesus, in this very famous sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount, he starts this sermon with these 12 verses as we have numbered them now. And he walks through these eight or nine, depending on how you try to break them apart, beatitudes that bring again into view for us, this is what people who follow Jesus, disciples of Christ, look like. This is how we believe. This is what's true of us inwardly, and then this is what's true of us outwardly, certainly imperfectly. In this, on this side of heaven, in this life, even for those who have believed upon Jesus and we are being made more and more like him on a daily basis, we still struggle with sin. We still have the sin nature, so we'll never live these things out perfectly. But for the believer, this is what is beginning to be more and more true of us as Christ does his work in us. So this morning, we're, we're going to tackle two of them. We're going to hit uh, verses, uh, verse 6, that is, uh, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied, and blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, I want us to think first about, about the righteousness one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Quick, think back to last week again and previous weeks. What is blessed? What does it mean when he says blessed are those or blessed are those? In the most simple sense, he's saying happy, happy are those. But a little bit deeper dive into that word in the original language begins to pull out for us something that is really in line with what we've been talking about for quite a while here when we talk about flourishing, kingdom flourishing the wholeness, the completedness of how God designed us to be and how God designed life to be before sin wrecked it all. And so uh, it's this soul-enriching happiness. It's this deep, abiding happiness that is not wavered by circumstances. And in fact, most of the time, it is accompanied by suffering. That the way in which the kingdom of God functions in this time. It'll certainly be different when Christ comes and renews it all in the new heavens, the new earth, but it comes with hardship. This is why at the very beginning of the Beatitudes, Jesus starts with blessed are those, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. Last week, we looked at blessed are the meek and we dove into a little bit about how meekness is not weakness. We often think of it that way. It's our default setting to think, well, that means that you're a weak person if you are given to meekness. But we redefine meekness according to the kingdom of God. And one of the things that I didn't say last week, but that I want us to remember, this good summation of, of how meekness is strength. Can you imagine how much strength it took for Jesus not to defend himself? when going to the cross and hanging on the cross. That was meekness, was it not? We talked about how meekness is not putting the self at center, but rather the kingdom of God at center. Taking self totally out of the equation. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did. But to not defend himself, to not be self-assertive, 
in that time, being beaten and going to the cross and then hanging on the cross to the point of death, that took an unworldly amount of strength. So in that sense, in that beautiful sense, meekness is strength in the kingdom of God. As it, as it comes to righteousness, though, it says that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So I want you to think about a time, and hopefully all of us have this, where you can remember I was desperately hungry. I don't mean just like, hey, I haven't eaten lunch, and so now dinner, I'm really desperate for dinner. No, I just mean like days worth of not eating. Some of us, because of following Jesus, have practiced fasting, and you know what that feels like. Others of us have been in situations where perhaps maybe you've been camping and you ran out of food, or you've been in a situation that much more dire than that, realistically, really hungry. Or maybe it's not hunger for you, but you can think of a time when you were thirsty. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is it like to thirst to the point of thinking that if I don't get just one little drop on my tongue soon, I'm going to perish? Now this, some of you parents are thinking about your kids at Disney World right now, and that's how they act if they haven't had something to drink in the last hour while they wait in line, and just, I'm dying, right? But real hunger and thirst. Obviously, for me, I say obviously, you may not know this, but our oldest child, our son, is adopted from Ukraine, so every day, Rachel and I have been very immersed in all that's going on over there, thinking and praying consistently and continually about that situation, and I was reading just yesterday morning about uh, one of the southern cities that has now fully been surrounded by Russian uh, military. It's called Maripol. And they've totally cut off the city to where no food or drink can now get into the city. There are people right now in that city who know very well, very keenly identifying with hunger and thirst, true hunger and thirst, but it's not just there. There are places like that all throughout the, the world, particularly our brothers and sisters in Africa who are, and in the Middle East, who are being persecuted by extremist Muslims who are being cut off literally physically and, and suffering that type of persecution. But it's not just over there, it's here too. Many of us might be surprised at how many right around us in neighborhoods right around us are truly hungry, physically, who don't have the daily food that they need. We have an idea, and it's harder for us in America, but we do. We have an idea of what it's like to be hungry and thirsty physically. But what every human on earth struggles with, whether, that, whether our reality is physical hunger or not, what every human on earth struggles with is to really begin to understand what spiritual hunger and thirst looks like. To truly hunger and thirst for the things of God. For God himself and for the things of God. We might sum that up as righteousness. Here's why. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, first and foremost, is to hunger and thirst for God himself because God is righteous. That's who he is. Look at these three verses. These are just three of a, a myriad of verses that I could have chosen from that, that tell us explain to us who God is as being the righteous one. Uh, it says this, Psalm 119 says, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in faithfulness. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. 
You'll see a lot of times in describing God in the scriptures, you'll see righteous and just right next to each other because that's our way of interpreting the same Hebrew word. This is why sometimes in the New Testament it talks about that we have been declared righteous, but then it'll also say that we have been justified through the finished work of Jesus. These are the same root word getting at two applications of the same reality. That's why in Psalm 97, you see this. You see the declaration. This is also in Psalm 89. You see the declaration that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. I I preached two sermons back in 2020. The end of August, beginning of September. It was in our series that we did on Imago Day that I would encourage you to go back and listen to at some point, sometime soon, because in those two sermons, I do a much deeper dive into into that root word and into the realities of righteousness and justice. And I don't have time this morning to do that, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to that as time permits. But even with that last verse, if righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne of God, if he is righteous, that's who he is, then as a people of God, if you've believed upon him through faith in Jesus, then it only seems natural and right and good that we too would have the foundations of our lives be that very same thing as we bow at his throne. As he sits on the throne of righteousness and justice, we should be a people of righteousness and justice. God being righteous means that he's always right. Everything that he does, because he is God is good, it's right, it's just, it's fair. And even if we look at it in in our skewed reality and view of things because of our unrighteousness, because of sin in us, we may look at the things that he sovereignly purposes and say that's not right, that's not good, that's not fair. But because he is God, we can't say that because we're not God. This is why the the hard but true teaching of Romans 9. Who are we, the potter, to speak back to the clay? God is right. So if we are to be a people of righteousness, if we are to be a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it means simply this, that we are to hunger and thirst for what God hungers and thirsts for. That we are to be passionate about what he is passionate about. That we are to love what he loves. That we are to hate what he hates. That we are to long for what is right and for what is good and what is pure. So as we think about that, that plays out in two ways. Okay, We're going to hunger and we're going to thirst for righteousness because of the work of Christ in our lives. And it plays out primarily in two ways. First, in this way. That we are to hunger for and rest in the imputed righteousness of Christ. That we are to hunger for and rest in the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is pointing us towards our standing with God. Another way to say it is our position before God. Now, I'll, I'll explain in just a moment what that word imputed means. It's probably not a word that you use on a daily basis. It's a theological term, but it's a rich term that I want to encourage you to remember. So if we hunger and rest, thirst, and rest in the imputed righteousness of Christ for us, here's what that means. You have to go back to the very beginning again. 
to when God created us. And he created man and woman as the pinnacle of his creation. And the reason that we are above all other created things is because we of all creation are created in his image. We are in his likeness. And pre-sin, before we get the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, what was true of us is that we stood before God in his presence uncondemned. In other words, a way to say that is we were with God in right standing. There was, no, there was nothing in obstruction of us and God. There was nothing that kept the holy God as he is, the righteous God as he is, from having relationship and communion with his image bearers. We were in right standing with God. But as we chose sin, and I say we because we inherited the same residue of sin nature that Adam and Eve brought into the world, and we're born with that same sin nature and Adamic residue, as it were, so as, as a result of what happened in Genesis 3, we fell dead in the garden with them, meaning spiritually we died. And we died because we chose unrighteousness over righteousness. We chose our story over his story. We, we chose our glory over his glory. And when we did that, what we lost at that point is we lost our right standing with God. We lost our righteousness. Romans 1 speaks to the reality that we now in our unrighteousness exchange the truth of God for a lie. And we worship now because of our unrighteousness, we worship the creator, I'm mean, sorry, the created rather than the creator. We get everything mixed up. Everything becomes marred. Everything becomes tangled. Everything becomes skewed. Everything about our reality now is not God-centered, but man-centered. And it's because of our unrighteousness. And so we no longer have our right standing before God. We are no longer who we ought to be as righteous people in the sight of God. And so to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst to be made right again. To be righteous again. This is the heartbeat of the human existence. This is what every human is longing for. And they don't know that, we don't know how to express it, but that's the heartbeat. That's at the center. I want to be right again. I want to be righteous again. Not like, hey, I want to be right in it versus right or wrong. It means I want to be right with God again. And we long for that. We don't know how to express it. And we run to all kinds of other things to satisfy us. Remember what the verse said? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you do, you will be satisfied. And is that not the story of the human existence? Chasing, 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 chasing things that are unrighteous, thinking that they will satisfy us. Constantly grappling and and grabbing and reaching and saying, this will do it. I have this God-sized vortex in me because of my unrighteousness, and this will give me the satisfaction I long for, and he will give me the satisfaction I long for, and she will give me the satisfaction, and this relationship, and this job, and this reputation, and this money, and this status, and whatever it is, and we just gorge ourselves on dining on all those things that we're hungry and thirsty for, and they will not satisfy. They won't. And that's the story of the human existence. You, story century, you study century after century after century, and it's just one big, long chasing after something that only the righteousness of God can give us. 
But how do we get it, right? The nature of religion is to say this, is to say, well, if there is a righteous God and I'm not righteous, then I've got to do something to get there. I've got to be good. I've got to be moral. I've got to make sure that I take communion on a weekly basis. I've got to make sure I go to church and serve or whatever it is in that culture's reality that says this is what you have to do to get right with God again. And every religion in the world is based on that reality. Every religious structure Every belief system is based on the performance of man to get the God that they believe in to say, okay, you're right with me. You're accepted. You have right standing before me. But it's all built on the performance of what we can do in some religious structure. Christianity is the only one, and this is why Jesus is so counterculture. Jesus is the only one who has ever been on the scene and ever will be on the scene who doesn't make up religion according to the way that man would do it. You want to know why other religions aren't uh, true? Is because they all peel back to the same fundamental core layer, which says you got to do something to make God like you. Christianity is the only one that says you can never do enough to ever make God like you. You can never do enough to ever be accepted or declared righteous in your own power. The work has to be done for you. And so Jesus came as the righteous one. He came as the perfect one. He came as the pure one. He came as the undefiled one. He came as the one to live for us what we not just wouldn't live, but couldn't live. And he as our substitute was perfectly righteous in our place. And then he took his perfect righteousness and he went to the cross to do just this, to take the punishment of our unrighteousness for us. The only one who who ever lived and walked the face of the earth who didn't deserve the wrath of God for unrighteousness, he took as the only righteous one. He stood in our place so that we could stand in that place as righteous. But that wasn't enough because the beauty of the sacrifice of the cross is the righteous one in the, in the substitutionary atonement for the unrighteous wasn't enough because the penalty of our unrighteousness, death itself, had to be dealt with. And so Jesus, as the righteous one hung on a cross for the unrighteous, defeated the penalty of death in the resurrection. And so that when we believe upon Jesus, all the work has been done. The work of the righteous living that we can't live, the work of the wrath of God poured out on us, but not on us, on him. And then lastly, the one who would take the penalty of sin on our behalf, already fully accomplished so that when we believe upon Jesus, we are declared righteous based on his work. And we have resurrection over the grave based on his work. Now, here's the thing. Most of us, most of us struggle with this. Here's why. We believe the gospel to the extent that it forgives us. We don't believe the gospel to the extent that we are righteous. We struggle with God looking at us and going, having the mindset of a disappointed dad who says, you're my son, so I will tolerate you and forgive you, but I don't like you. What we need to look at when we look at the God of the universe is we need to see a father that is unlike all of our earthly fathers, including the best of earthly fathers, who when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he looks at us and he is fully delighting in us. He doesn't just forgive us and tolerate us. 
He declares us to be righteous and he adores us. That's the beauty of the good news of Jesus. Now, this is what we hunger and thirst for. We hunger and thirst for the righteousness that only Jesus gives. And the theological term for that is imputed. Imputed is putting the righteousness on Jesus as if it were ours, putting his righteousness on us as if it were ours, and putting our sin on him as if it were his. But neither are true in the, in the, reality, in the real sense. But God looks upon us and sees us as righteous. So we hunger and we thirst for that righteousness. But secondly, we hunger and we thirst for the imparted righteousness of Christ. We walk in the imparted righteousness of Christ. So if you think about that the first righteousness is our position before God, that we are declared right through the finished work of Jesus, this is the practice of our righteousness. So if we are indeed declared right, he is actually making us more righteous, not so that we can win his favor and his acceptance, but because we already have it fully in Jesus. So John, 1 John 3.10 says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now again, in those sermons that I preached a year and a half ago, I dive into this much deeper, but I'm just gonna mention to you four in the scriptures that is so abundant and clear, the four types of people group that our displayed righteousness, the practice of our righteousness is lived out more, most poignantly. Time and again in the scriptures, these are the four people. First, we do what is right. We live out our righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus among the poor. Second, we do what is right in caring for the marginalized. Third, we do what is right in caring for the oppressed. And then certainly, not lastly, but certainly uh, Overall of it, we, we do what is right in caring for the lost. We do what is right in caring for the lost. Michael Green, a biblical commentator, says this, there is a profound happiness. There is a profound happiness in having a desperate hunger, a burning thirst for goodness to display the righteousness of Christ. Kingdom people know something, and this is where we get into that second beatitude that I'll just touch on here. That next beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Here's what kingdom people know. Kingdom people swimming in the current of that river know this, that if we're going to be declared righteous through the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, it has to be and is fully, completely a work of the mercy of God. It's God's mercy. It's us not getting what we deserve. What, what do we deserve? We deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. What do we get instead through the grace of God? We get the righteousness of Christ. And we know that. We know God to be extraordinarily merciful to us as we consider what we, des what we deserve versus what we get. And I want you to tune into that word extraordinary, ex extraordinarily. That's what it looks like to the world. It's extraordinary mercy. It's even foolish mercy. 
It's a mercy that doesn't make sense because in times where we are called as people of God to display the extraordinary, unthinkable mercy of God towards those that don't deserve it, what is the world screaming at us? Punish them. Get revenge. Throw wrath at them because that's what they deserve. But as a people of God who know through Jesus that we don't get what we deserve, we then extend that extraordinary mercy to people in the same way. That's who the church should be and who the church is through the power of Jesus in us. We are a people, as one commentator defined it, we are a people who look like this. Mercy This is his definition of mercy. Mercy is love for those in misery and a forgiving spirit toward the sinner. It embraces both the kindly feeling, don't miss this, the kindly feeling and the kindly act. Mercy and compassion are like cousins, if not brothers. And you've heard, some of you have heard me say before that compassion without action is simply pity restrained by selfishness. Compassion without action is just pity held back by our own selfishness. Well, mercy is similar. Mercy is not just a feeling of of mercy, but followed by the act of mercy, that we would actually be merciful, not just think mercifully with, with mercy, but to be merciful. There's all kinds of places in scripture that lead us to get a picture of what this looks like. Matthew 18 is a great one. It's the, it's the parable that Jesus told of the unmerciful servant who owed a great amount of debt to his master, 20 years worth of wages. And he went and begged his master to forgive the debt. And after uh, groveling at his master's feet and saying, please, please, please show mercy, the master forgave his debt. This servant who was forgiven then had another servant who uh, this servant owed him a very small amount of debt. In fact, it was only just a few days worth of wages, not 20 years worth. And this servant came to him and said, please forgive the debt and begged and begged and begged. And this servant who had been forgiven so very much would not forgive the debt, the small debt to the other servant. Jesus at the end of the parable basically says this, if you don't forgive others, my father in heaven won't forgive you. Now, that's not, a, that's not a performance thing, like, hey, based on how much you forgive, you'll get to heaven or not. It's just simply saying this. This is the way of the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they too will be shown mercy. And when we have been a people who have received so much mercy as we have, then we are a people who by nature, through Christ in us, are merciful. That last commentator I read, he He had another quote that I want to read to you as we wrap up. His name is William Hendrickson, and his commentary is one of my favorites. He says, it is immediately apparent that if the implication of this fifth beatitude, those who are merciful, it's immediately apparent that if they were put into practice with greater zeal and consistency, the preaching of the gospel would be far more effective. What a blessing for mankind this would be. That prompted for me a time just this week to sit and think What would the church look like if we began to take what we looked at last week and this week and we began to truly live it out through the power of the Spirit within us? If we were, if we were a people committed to meekness, if we if we were a people that were desperately hungry for righteousness, if we were a people who were extraordinarily merciful, what would we begin to look like? 
And I jotted a lot of things down, but here's just a few that I'll share with you now. We'd be less worldly selfish and more unworldly selfless, less infighting and more serving, less defensive posturing and more gracious pursuing of one another. We'd have less infatuation with personal comfort and more hunger for personal holiness. We'd have less concern over church programming and more concern over the church's mission. We'd be marked by a people of less and less preference of what I want and more and more deference of what do you need. Be less idolatry of safety and more faith-filled risk marking the church. Be less exhaustion and more rest, less striving and performing and trying to live up to get the approval of God when we fully have it in Jesus, resting in him. In summary, it would be church would look less and less about me and more and more about God and our neighbor. There's so much more to be said there, but that's what it begins to look like when we are a people committed to meekness, when we are desperately hungry for righteousness, and when we are extraordinarily, according to the world, extraordinarily merciful. Because in the kingdom of God, listen to this, in the kingdom of God, meekness is strength, hunger is health, and mercy is normal. It's the norm. So, oh God, would you make us those three things? Would you make us a meek people? Would you make us a desperately hungry people for you, for the righteous one, and for the righteous ways of the kingdom of God? And, oh God, would you make us merciful as those who have received great mercy? And the good news, oh God, is you would remind us, even now in this table, the good news for us is that we can be that church through the power of the Spirit within us. We can be what you have called us to be, not in our own power, but in yours. So would you do it? Unto your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.